0: When my wife and I were married, we stood in front of a bunch of people in church. We publicly made our vows to one another and we exchanged wedding rings that we both wear. Now, we could have been married in a private ceremony, just the two of us, and and a minister or a justice of the peace, maybe a couple of witnesses. We don't have to necessarily wear wedding rings. In fact, if I have to remove my wedding ring for some reason, I'm working on something and I take it off, We're still married, even though I've removed this ring, because the ring is a symbol. It's a symbol of the vows that we made to each other and to God. Baptism is sort of like that. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian any more than putting on a ring makes you married. They're both symbols. And just as someone should be proud to publicly declare their undying love and faithfulness and commitment to their husband or their wife, so a Christian should be proud to publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ and commit to his bride, the church. And you do both of those through the ordinance we call baptism. Now, baptism has some ancient roots deep in Jewish practice. In fact, uh, when I went to Israel, one of the things that I saw time and again in almost every archaeological site was what they call mikvah. A mikvah is a baptistry, basically. It's this big pool they've dug in the ground that the Jewish people would walk into. They would submerse themselves in the water as a ritual purification. Now, John the Baptist took that ritual purification. He expanded it to say that if you will turn from your sins, if you will repent from your sins and turn to God, you can be baptized as a sign of that repentance. It's not just ritual. It's not just purification purposes so you can go to the temple or something. It is about a life change, a heart change. And, of course, then Jesus came. And Jesus was baptized, not because he needed to repent of his sins, not as any symbol of that, but as, a, as an example for us, so that we can follow his example in obedience and as a foreshadowing of what he came to this earth to do. Combined, the words baptize and baptism occur exactly 100 times in the New Testament. So it's something that's talked about, written about, practiced a lot, we should take some time to talk about it ourselves. So if you'll take your order of worship and take those notes out, you'll notice that we had to put the insert, the notes on an insert this week because it's two-sided. I'm preaching a two-part sermon, and uh, there's a lot to write down there, but we're going to move through it really quickly. So you're going to have to listen quick and write quick as we go through this. And I want to share just a few things the Bible teaches us about what baptism means and why it matters. The first is through baptism we publicly declare our faith in Jesus Christ. We publicly declare our faith through baptism. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So Jesus makes it very clear. He expects us to publicly proclaim our relationship with Him. And baptism is that public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in our tradition, in a lot of Baptist traditions, we, you know, we come down the aisle during the invitation uh, to join a church or to make a public decision for Jesus. Let's not confuse that. That is not your public profession of faith. That is the beginning of the process for the public profession of faith that should be done through baptism. That is where we definitively proclaim to other people that we belong to Jesus. it Ben been said that we are a part of, of the family of God. That's the biblical means through profession of faith in Jesus. It's through the waters of baptism. Whether that's the water of a baptistry or the water of a swimming pool or the water of a creek or the water up at the lake, it doesn't matter. What matters is that through those waters you are publicly professing your faith in Jesus Christ. Second, baptism is an act of obedience because Jesus commands baptism. It's an act of obedience. A test of whether a person is a true follower of Jesus Christ is whether or not they strive to live in obedience to Jesus' commands. In fact, 1 John 2, 3 says, We know that we have come to know Him. How? If we keep His commands. That's not to say that we're perfect and that we get it right every time, but the bent of our heart should always be, as Christians, to keep the commands of God and as I said, Jesus commands baptism. In Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20, Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So if we are commanded to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, then it holds that those disciples are commanded to be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't Jesus saying, hey, this is kind of a nice add-on. Hey, this is an option for you if you want it. No, it's a command. And if we're not baptized, we're not living in full and complete obedience to the commands of God. Number three, in the New Testament, all new believers were baptized in the body of Christ. All new believers. In Acts 2.41, it says those who accepted his message, this is on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 were saved, it says that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. When Philip led the Samaritans to faith in Jesus, they were baptized. When Peter went to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and led him and his household to faith in Christ, they were baptized. When Philip met the Ethiopian official on the road and explained the gospel to him, and he put his faith in Jesus, he baptized him on the side of the road. In fact, we won't find a single example in the New Testament of anybody giving an excuse for why they should not be baptized once they've trusted in Jesus. Even if that means you have to be baptized in a puddle in a ditch on the side of the road, you were baptized. And number four, I told you we were going to move quick. Number four... Baptism has some very powerful symbolism. In fact, there are 3 at least these three main things that baptism symbolizes for us. First, it symbolizes what Jesus did for you through the cross and the empty tomb. What Jesus did for you. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried in the grave. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 4 For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. No other method of baptism symbolizes that any better than being baptized by immersion where you go into the water. It's as if you die and, and you're buried and you're raised from the dead. And that's a picture, a symbol of what Jesus did for you. It, you aren't saved by what you do. You aren't saved by being baptized. As Ben said, you're, say, you're baptized after you've put your faith in Jesus. That's okay? a profession that you have put your faith in Jesus, but you've already trusted in Jesus before then. So when you're baptized, you're showing people, here's what Jesus has done for me. He died, was buried, and rose from the grave. But it also symbolizes what has happened to you by God's grace through faith. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are born again. You are made new from the inside out. It's as if you have died to your sins, to your old way of life, to being conformed to the patterns of this world. You've died to that. And you've been raised to walk in the newness of life, being transformed into the image of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 6, 3-4, he says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So baptism both pictures what Jesus did for us, but also that with Jesus we also have died, been buried, and raised as new creations in Christ Jesus But there's a third thing that baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes what will happen to you someday. Your body will someday die and be buried in the grave. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've put your trust in Him and you've received God's grace, someday when Christ returns, your body will be raised, a new resurrection body just like Jesus was, and you will live forever in the new heaven and the new earth. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him, for the Lord Himself will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when you're baptized, you're not just declaring what Jesus did for you, what has happened in your life, but you're proclaiming with hope what will someday happen. You're claiming that promise proclaiming that good news, that death is not the end of the story. This is why as Baptists, we believe in baptism by immersion. Because no other method but immersion, by being put under the water and brought back up so beautifully pictures these three realities. And in fact, the Greek word, baptizo, means to immerse. It means to dunk. It's the same Greek word that would be used to talk about a ship sinking in the ocean or about a woman washing clothes and dunking the clothes into the water. It means to go under the water and to come back up. So, in summary, baptism symbolizes four things: it symbolizes the right person, okay? It's a believer in Christ. Okay? You have to be a believer in Christ to practice believer's baptism, it involves, secondly, the right reasons. Obedience and declaration of your faith. Again, you're not baptized to be saved. You're baptized in obedience and as a declaration of your salvation in Christ. Three, the right method. Immersion. Because it is what was practiced in the New Testament. It is what beautifully proclaims these three truths we just discussed. And number four, the right authority. A local New Testament church. Whenever you see people baptized in the New Testament, they are baptized not just into some generic... Church, They are baptized into a body of believers, into a group of people who are going to do life together as the family of God. And throughout the book of Acts, you see the importance and the value of believer's baptism as a public declaration of faith and as an identification with God's people, the church. And that is what we celebrate this morning. Now, two weeks ago, because of the coronavirus, because we can't really let people from different households pass through these waters at the same time, We had a growing list of people that desired to be baptized. Many of them had become Christians years and years before. And they finally came to that place where they realized, you know what, I need to publicly profess this. I need to be obedient and follow Jesus in baptism. And so they were baptized two weeks ago on a Saturday. We did it out at the Poston Pool, at Jay and Kelly Poston's Pool. We're thankful for them. And it was just a beautiful day. We could space them out throughout the day. Their family could come and could celebrate that. We filmed it so that we could share it with you. And and you can be a part of these people professing their faith in Jesus and being baptized into this New Testament church. The great news is we have more people that are waiting to be baptized. And so we're going to space them out on Sundays in the month of July. And uh, we're going to continue to see people added to our number each week. Praise God. Amen. Let's watch and celebrate these baptisms together. You know, just as important as baptism is as an ordinance of the church, so is the Lord's Supper. It is also a way in which we proclaim our faith and obey Christ's commands. And In fact, when you look at the early church, you see even from the very first gatherings there after the day of Pentecost, just as they were baptized, they also celebrated the Lord's Supper. In fact, in Acts 2.42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. While the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the death of Christ for the remission of our sins, and it is a proclamation of His death and resurrection, the Lord's Supper is also a symbol of Christian community. In fact, what I want us to think about this morning are some ways the Lord's Supper can help us remember not just what Jesus did for us, but the kind of people He has made us. What does it mean for us to be a salvation people, a family of God? As we've been baptized into the fellowship, what does that fellowship look like? First, the church is a community unified in Christ. The Lord's Supper helps us to remember the church is a community unified in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10... Paul has some words about uh, the Lord's Supper in chapters 10 and 11. And in verses 16 through 17, he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving, for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many, are one body, for we all share one loaf. For the early church, the one loaf was a metaphor for the oneness of the body. Now, we don't use one loaf here, but we do share from one table. We do partake at the same time. When we traditionally do the Lord's Supper, we serve the people next to us as a symbol of our unity. And, of course, the way we're going to have to do it this morning is a little different because of the coronavirus. But even in doing it differently, we do that as a way to serve our neighbors so we can make sure we keep everybody safe and healthy. The common bread, the common cup, are to remind us of the common life we share in Christ. That's one of the reasons why people call the Lord's Supper communion. It's not so much that we are communing with God through the Lord's Supper, but that we are communing with God together. We are communing with one another. It is something we share in community. So it has a a horizontal but also a vertical aspect to it both baptism and the lord's supper are ordinances of the church not of individual christians and i believe when you divorce these ordinances from the gathered body of believers you begin to lose some of your meaning and your significance again paul in first corinthians 10 and 11 is rebuking the corinthian christians for their lack of unity and togetherness. They were guilty of approaching this act of worship with a what's in it for me mentality. They didn't have any consideration for the needs of others around them, as to how this act of worship might help other people to connect with God. So in Paul's letter here, if you read it, I'm not going to take time to read it right now, but he talks about them getting drunk on the communion wine and they were overeating and overindulging themselves. Well it's kind of hard when you're drinking from a little tiny shot glass of grape juice to get drunk, right? I mean, it's grape juice. It's kind of hard to overindulge on one of these little crackers, isn't it, right? So that's not so much a danger for us, but we can be guilty of that same what's-in-it-for-me attitude when we come to worship, can't we? We can have a, I'm coming so that I can get spiritually fed kind of a, a way of thinking, and we're not thinking about whether other people are getting fed or not, or whether God would have us to help feed other people we may not get drunk on wine but we are getting drunk on emotional experiences are we getting drunk on sentimentalism while others around us are spiritually starving one of the neat things when i went to israel this past january was to go to this place called tagba that uh, was a, a traditional Christian site. The traditional site means there's not a lot of archaeological evidence to back up these events happening there, but it's a great place to go and to commemorate and to meditate on these events. And Tabgah uh, both commemorates Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes, but also just about 100 yards down the beach, it's right there on the Sea of Galilee, about 100 yards down from where we can commemorate the feeding of the 5,000 is where Jesus fed his disciples a fish breakfast, which I know is really weird, but they do eat fish for breakfast over there. I've, I've seen the breakfast buffet with fish. Uh, and so he cooks them a fish breakfast there on the beach after his resurrection. Remember, Peter jumps into the water, swims ashore, so excited to see Jesus. And that's where Jesus three times confronts Peter, Do you love me? And three times Peter says, You know I love you, Lord. And three times Jesus charges Peter, Feed my sheep. Now I thought, how profound is it that in this one location we both commemorate Jesus feeding others, but also Jesus' challenge for us to feed others. If we're not careful, we come to the Lord's Supper, we come to worship with a feed me, Jesus, and we forget the charge to go and feed others. That's a part of our unity as a church in Christ. And it's also that the church should be a selfless and generous community. That's the second thing the Lord's Supper can remind us of. That we need to consider others before ourselves, even in how we observe this Lord's Supper. We need to be selfless and generous people. Uh, Paul warns us not to eat this supper in an unworthy manner. He tells us to make sure that we're right with God, confess our sins before we partake of these elements. What we fail to understand is that one of the sins that God is most concerned with in the church is the sin of self-centeredness. It's the sin of failing to be in right relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the sin of putting my needs, my wants, my preferences before those of the people worshiping with us in the pew. So when we eat this bread and drink this cup with hearts that are hardened towards our brothers and sisters, we're guilty of sinning against the body of Christ. See, when Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11 about sinning against the body of Christ, he's not talking about Jesus' physical body. He's not talking about the bread and what it represents. He's talking about the body of Christ. Each other. Our brothers and our sisters. Number three, the Lord's Supper reminds us that the church is a restoring and reconciling community. You see, the bread can symbolize restoration because the bread bread symbolizes the body of Christ which was beaten and bruised and pierced for you and me the prophet Isaiah says that by the stripes of Jesus we are healed it is through Jesus's physical suffering on the cross that he begins to take a broken world and to make it whole and to bring restoration And we, as the body of Christ, as the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, we are to be a part of that mission to heal and to restore what is broken in this world. Uh, When we baptize, we talk about Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. One of the qualities of salt is that it preserves, it sanitizes, it's a healing agent. And we are to be agents of healing and restoration in the world. But the cup can symbolize reconciliation. Jesus said of the cup, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So when we drink of this cup, it not only reminds us of our forgiveness, but that through Jesus it is possible for us to forgive those who have wronged us. In fact, Jesus teaches that it's hard for us to be a forgiven people if we aren't willing to be a forgiving people. So the Lord's Supper reminds us that the church is to be a restoring And reconciling community. And how much does our world today need a church that's a selfless, generous, restoring, reconciling community? Amen. And finally, the Lord's Supper reminds us that the church is a holy community. Whenever we celebrate baptism or observe the Lord's Supper, these ordinances remind us of our story, the story of God, the gospel. The story of redemption from sin and resurrection from death. It reminds us that we are a redeemed and reconciled people. It reminds us who we are called to be. We are called to be a holy people. We are set apart from the world for the world to go into the world to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach them. We are fed so we can feed others. We are healed to bring healing to others. We are reconciled with God so that we can become agents of reconciliation. Now, before we partake of these elements, I want you to take a moment and examine yourself. And ask yourself first, do you know Jesus? As we saw demonstrated through baptism, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, relying on His grace and His mercy for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have not, then here as we sing in a moment, I invite you to come, or if you're watching online, I invite you to pray and confess your sins, turn from them, and put your faith and trust in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And we're going to give you the opportunity to do that in just a moment. But secondly, ask yourself, are you engaged in the ministry of reconciliation? Are there people in your life that you need to forgive? Are there people in your life that you have a wrong relationship with and you need to do your part to try to reconcile that? Of course, you can only do your part. You're not responsible for their part. But have you made those good faith efforts? And se- and thirdly, what decision do you need to make today? Maybe it's in joining this church. Maybe it's in coming forward to follow Jesus in baptism. You're already a Christian, but like many of these, you've not yet been baptized, and you want to say, I want to, I want to celebrate this Lord's Supper with a clear conscience by committing to do what God has called me to do. Whatever is let on your heart, let's stand together, and I pray that you would respond as we sing. Father, thank you so much for your Word, your Word that is written, and your Word that is demonstrated and proclaimed as we obey you through baptism, as we observe this Lord's Supper. And I pray if there's anyone here that needs to make a commitment to you, whatever that may be, I pray they would listen to your spirit and be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.